I invite you to turn in the Pew Bibles to the prophecy of Zephaniah. You'll find that on page 1001 in your Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Pew Bible, then go to Matthew, then go back four uh, books of the Bible. It's not often that we look at the minor prophets or even the major prophets here at Trinity. I, I think the last time we did so was when Reverend Alba preached his way through Malachi. That must be some five years ago. And uh, so I, I thought it would be appropriate to have a short series. We hope to get back into Luke in a few weeks, but to have a short series on the prophet Zephaniah. Not the most well-known of the prophets, but one who has a word for us as well. We'll begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. And the rubble with the wicked, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will do no good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. 
Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It is not the most pleasant passage of Scripture to have read in your hearing. It's a passage that alarms us because it speaks of devastation and ruin and judgment and punishment. And I assure you, it's not a passage of Scripture that one would like to preach either because of the same reasons. It's much more pleasant to speak about love and grace and the kindness and mercy of God and the incarnation of the Son of God to save sinners. Those topics are much more pleasing. And yet, we have no option. Notice at the beginning of this prophecy what it says there in verse 1. It tells us, first of all, when this prophet Zephaniah ministered. It was during the days of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah. It is a prophecy that is spoken to the southern tribes, the the tribe of Judah, not to the northern tribes, the, the kingdom of Israel. Already by now, Israel has been removed from the scene because of their incessant sin and their failure to repent. The Lord had taken them away through the instrumentality of the Assyrians, and they have been carried off to Assyria. They are no more. It's addressed to Judah, the southern tribes. But Judah is about to be wiped away as well because of their sin. They had just endured the, the horrific reigns of Manasseh and Manasseh's son, Amnon. Manasseh, you might remember, was an extremely wicked king who did not walk in the ways of the Lord. He sacrificed his children to the gods. It tells us that before he repented, because he did repent later in his life. Before he repented, he filled Jerusalem with the blood of innocent men. And his son Amnon was no better. He walked in the ways of his father Manasseh and brought such havoc upon the people of God. And then there was Josiah. Josiah is the last good king of Judah. He was a man who sought the Lord and who desired to walk in the ways of the Lord. You might remember that Josiah was the one who brought about a number of reforms in Judah because he was the king uh, that started rebuilding or fixing, renovating the temple. And while they were doing it, the book of the law of Moses was found. And it was read to Josiah. 
and he began to bring about reform in the nation. It was a reform that was too little uh, and too late, but it was a reform nonetheless. And so Zephaniah, we're told, ministered in the days of Josiah the son of Amnon. But that's not all that we learn in the first verse. We learn as well that Zephaniah ministered according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah the son of Cushi. This is not something that Zephaniah made up himself. This message is not his own concoction. He's not a miserable man who seeks company and so tries to make everyone else feel miserable as well. This is the word of the Lord. And he's not shy about it either. Notice in verse 2 he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Again in verse 3, declares the Lord. Again in verse 10, on that day, declares the Lord. So this is God's word to Zephaniah that he was then to communicate to the people of Judah. It's almost as if Zephaniah were to say, it's not something I would choose to preach. But since it is the word of the Lord that has come to you, I must preach it to you. I can do nothing else. And that's the spirit in which we ought to approach this section of God's Word this morning. Yes, there are other passages of Scripture that are more pleasant to our hearing, but it is the Word of the Lord. And since it is the Word of the Lord, as the minister of the gospel, under the authority of Christ as His ambassadors, I must preach this Word. And since it is the Word of the Lord, as those who are sitting under the Word, you must hear this Word. And because it is the Word of the Lord, you can be assured that it is never for your harm. It's always for our blessing, for our joy, for our delight, so that we might enjoy God and glorify Him forever. So, what is the Lord saying in this passage to us? The first thing I want to notice is that he is, uh, as the prophet, he is announcing the day of the Lord. You might have picked up the numerous references to the day as it was being read in your hearing. We come across it first in verse 7, for the day of the Lord is near. And then again in verse 8, the day of the Lord's sacrifice. Verse 9, on that day. Verse 10, on that day. Uh, verse 14, twice, the great day of the Lord is near. The sound of the day of the Lord. And then verses 15 through 16, six times you hear about the day of the Lord in rapid succession. Turn a page over, at least in my Bible. Verse 18 as well speaks about the day of the wrath of the Lord. Chapter 2, uh, verse 2, speaks about the day of the Lord three times. So what is this day of the Lord? It's obvious that Zephaniah's prophecy is an announcement of the Lord's day. What is the day of the Lord? Well, it's really the day of God's arrival. It's the day of God's coming. God is going to appear on the scene. And whenever God appears, there's always two results. First, there is salvation for his people. Secondly, 
There is judgment on his enemies. And here in Zephaniah, the, most, the note that sounded the most is that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, a day of wrath, a day in which he is going to come and bring the covenant curses upon his people. Notice how this day is described. It's first described in verses 2 and 3 as a day of decreation. So in the beginning in Genesis, we read on days 5 and 6, the Lord made in this order the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, animals, and then man. Well, now in the judgment that the Lord is bringing, this is going to be reversed, decreation. And so he talks about how he's going to sweep away man, created last, destroyed first, beast, birds, and fish. It's a day of decreation. It's a day of reflood. Remember when, when the Lord spoke to Noah in Genesis 6, verse 7, the Lord said that he's going to wipe away man from the face of the earth. And this is reiterated here in verse 3. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. The same language is used. But this is worse than the flood. Because at least in the flood, there were animals spared and the fish were spared. But here in this coming day of God's wrath, even the fish of the sea are going to be swept away. So it's a day of decreation. It's a day of reflood. It's a day of ungracing. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, notice, for instance, in verse 4, God is going to stretch out his hand against Judah. That's a very common phrase, the outstretched hand of the Lord. And usually in the Old Testament, at least prior to the prophets, it referred to that mighty act of God in which he stretched out his hand and brought his people out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. His hand was outstretched for them. Now his hand was outstretched against them. It's the reverse of grace. It's a day of ungracing. And you see that again in verse 4 where it talks about how the Lord will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. That cut language is the language of covenant. God cut a covenant with his people to promising to be their God and taking them to be his own. Well, now there's going to be a cutting but not a cutting of a covenant, but the cutting off of the people. It's a day of ungracing. Verse 7, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Sacrifices were demonstrations of the Lord's love and mercy to his sinful people that, that through the sacrifice, uh, through the blood sacrifice, there could be forgiveness. Well, now there's going to be another sacrifice not the sacrifice of the Lamb that pointed to the, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, but the people themselves are going to be the sacrifice on which God's wrath is going to be poured. You see this ungracing language again in verse 13. Remember in Deuteronomy, the Lord says that when he brings them into the land, they are going to live in houses they have not built they're going to eat of vineyards they have not planted. Well, here's the reverse. They are going to build houses, verse 13, 
but they shall not inhabit them. They're going to plant vineyards, but they are not going to drink wine from them. It's a day of disgracing. And then in verse 15, when you read about a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, that brings you all the way back to Exodus 19, when the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, met with his people, and established them as his nation. Well, now he's coming back in a very similar way, not to make them a nation, but to unnation them, to reverse his grace. It's a day of ungracing. So it's a day of decreation, day of reflooding, a day of ungracing. And then all the other language that is used. So horrible. Verse 8, I will punish. Verse 9, I will punish. It's a day that causes shrieking and wailing. Verse 10, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. Verse uh, 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. And these mighty men, intrepid in battle, fearless in combat. Well, even these mighty men cry aloud in shrieking at the terror of the day of the Lord. It will be a day in which blood will be poured out like dust and people's entrails will be spread like dung. It's not a pleasant day at all. It's a day of horror. And Zephaniah the prophet, he describes it in such graphic terms. Not because he's trying to capture completely what the day is like, because that's an impossibility. But he wants to give his readers, his hearers, and his readers, a glimpse of the sheer horror, the devastation, and ruin of that day. Not so that we think, oh, so this is what it's like, but so that we might think, this is even worse. The day of the Lord is even worse than what is described here. And we're meant to feel it. We're meant to be moved by it. We're meant to tremble, not to think of it as, as insignificant or not weighty. It's a serious matter, this day of the Lord. And as you read through it, you ought to shudder at these pronouncements of judgment against the people of God. In fact, even our Lord Jesus Christ himself shuddered at the thought of the day of the Lord's wrath. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he collapsed. He was so overwhelmed as he thought of the cup of the wrath of the Lord. He sweat blood, and then he cried out, my God, if it is possible, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. It's a terrible day. The judgment of God is not something to be sneezed at. It's serious. It's weighty, it's solemn, it's filled with gravitas. So that's how he describes the day. And then I want to notice, secondly, that this day, described in such horrible terms, is 
the execution is executed, rather, by the Lord. It's the Lord who brings this day of judgment against his people. He's not like a, a general contractor building houses that he can, uh, you know, fob off to the subcontractors, the, the jobs that he doesn't like doing. No, this day of the Lord is, is God himself coming in judgment against his people. You can see that by the use of all the eyes in this chapter. Verse 2, I will utterly uh, destroy. Verse 3, I will sweep away. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand. Verse 8, I will punish. Verse 9, I will. It's, it's the Lord. It's the Lord who's bringing this judgment upon His people. He is, he is present. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord your God. So God is coming to be with his people in order to execute his judgment against them. And it's a judgment that comes from God's wrath and anger. Look at how it says. It's not clear in the ESV, but in verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the overflowing wrath of the Lord. It's because of the jealousy of God. So that God is not distant from his, this judgment. He doesn't take a hands-off approach. It is God who is coming and God who is executing judgment. That's important for us to understand because sometimes I think we can depersonalize the judgment of God. We think people go to hell simply because, well, that's what happens when you don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ and you are just getting what you have chosen. Now it's true that you're getting what you have chosen, but it doesn't work the same way that the law of gravity works. You jump and you'll fall down. You disobey God and you'll go to hell. It's not just like that. It's that when you do not live according to the will of the Lord, He Himself punishes you. He sends you to hell. He throws you into the lake of fire. The day of the Lord is terrible, it is executed by the Lord himself. And then there's a third thing to notice about the day of the Lord. And that is that the day of the Lord falls on different days. What do I mean? Well, notice in verse 4. The Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all the inhabit and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So it's a prophecy by Zephaniah, particularly to Judah and Jerusalem, to the people who were living in that time, around 600 B.C. But then you have this other language. So you have very specific Judah and Jerusalem. But then notice in verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep uh, verse 3, away man and beast. At the end of that verse, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. And then you go over to ch chapter uh, 1, verse 18. He will, he will make, uh, for a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So it's very specific to Judah and Jerusalem. It's a day of God's visitation to them where he comes against them uh, through Babylonians, the Babylonian army, where they are destroyed and exiled into Babylon. But then there's this cosmic language. 
in which the day of the Lord, same day, it seems for the prophets, the day of the Lord is a day which has universal ramifications. It's not just about Judah and Jerusalem. It's about the whole world, all the inhabitants of the earth. Scholars have attempted to illustrate this by bringing us to a mountain range. And when you go to the mountains and you see a mountain in front of you, you you think there's the mountain. But then you go a little further and you see behind that another mountain and then another one. And there's these valleys in the middle. But, but when you're at the outside looking in, say you're in the foothills, all you see is mountain, not realizing that there are mountain ranges. And similarly here, the prophet, he looks forward. Not he looks forward to, but he looks ahead, and he sees the day of the Lord. And it's this one day. But then as we move through redemptive history, we see that the day of the Lord is actually days of the Lord. And so, yes, he, he comes down against the northern tribes and uh, brings them into exile to Assyria. He comes down against Judah and Jerusalem and brings them into exile in Babylonia. And then there's another day of the Lord that's coming. The New Testament speaks about it all the time. It's the day of the anger of God. Remember how, how Paul speaks about this in Romans 2. He says there in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So yes, there are days of the Lord where he has come in judgment, but there's still a day coming, the final day, the day when Christ returns, the day when the righteous wrath of God is being revealed. Right now, Paul says, God's wrath is being stored up like a reservoir stores up water, and it's ready to have the sluice gates open so that the wrath of God comes cascading down on all those who have no Savior. And so this prophecy of Zephaniah, It's good for them to hear back then, around 600 B.C., but it's a word for us too, because though that day has passed, that day of the Lord has come and gone, there is a day of the Lord that is still coming to which we are looking towards and for which we must be prepared. So that's the day of the Lord. Well, for whom does the day of the Lord come? Why is God so angry? Does he just wake up cranky someday, one day, and decide to unleash this torrent of uh, judgment on his people? Well, of course not. That would be blasphemous to think. So, why is God so angry? You can see this in in a couple of ways from this passage. You can see it, first of all, in in the recipients of his wrath. And so you see this. I will strike, stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Judah. And then specifically, he talks about cutting off from this place Baal worshipers, the name of idolatrous priests, star worshipers, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven. Today, those who read and trust in their horoscopes. Verse 5, those who 
worship other gods duplicitously. They bow down and swear to the Lord, so they confess, the Lord, he's my God, but then they also swear by Milcom, another God. So they are pluralists, syncretists. Verse 6, backsliders. Verse 6, those who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him, they've, they've relegated him to the insignificant, irrelevant of society. And then uh, you see in verse uh, 9, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Uh, you see it all throughout. God is angry with his people because, this really comes clear in verse 17, because they have sinned against the Lord. That's the reason. It's not because he's just grumpy. It's because they have sinned against the Lord, and he is bringing the fire of his jealousy against them to consume them. You see, the problem is uh, that human sin deserves divine punishment because God, God cannot simply over, overlook your sin. You know, we, we do that sometimes as, as parents. We, we know our children uh, are doing wrong things, but because we want to stay seated in our lazy boy chair, we, we don't get up and discipline it. And, and, and then when we do that, we're actually saying to our kids, no big deal. We're just condoning their sin. But, but God doesn't do that. You know, the, the fact that God doesn't unleash his punishment against us for every sin uh, against his commandment is not because he doesn't care about sin or, or as, as, as if it's no, no big deal. He's not, he's not like a celestial grandfather that smiles at our antics. No, no, he's a holy God. His law must be obeyed, and infringements against his law will be punished in his jealousy. That's why these people are threatened with the day of the wrath of the Lord. It's because they have sinned against the Lord, and the Lord against whom they have sinned is not soft. He's gracious, he's generous, he's kind, but but he's not soft. He's a God of severity and of holiness. And that's why this judgment is pronounced against all people, against officials, against royalty, the king's son, against priests, against all people, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including you and me this morning. We have sinned, and God hasn't changed. He hasn't gotten mellow with old age because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the unchanging God. And what incurred his judgment then incurs his judgment now. He judges because humans have sinned against the Lord. Well, what do we do? What do we do with this alarming, unsettling prophecy? Well, what Zephaniah says to the people of God back then is wise for the people of God today. Our response should be the same as the response he lays upon them. And so notice what he says in chapter 2. First of all, note the urgency. He wants them to gather together to seek the Lord, but but he doesn't want them to procrastinate. Look at verse 2. Four times in that verse, he talks about 
before, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. So this is serious. You can't put it off. You can't procrastinate because there's an urgency here. And you know the tendency to procrastinate. You know the tendency to procrastinate when you have to clean your garage and take summer things and put it down in the shed. You, you think, I've got time. It's not going to snow anyway. Well, some of you just got caught out this morning, I'm sure. You should have done it yesterday when I did it, when it was sunny and warm and there's no snow around. And there's always a tendency to procrastinate and to procrastinate because we think, as God points us out in verse 12, we think like those people who are complacent, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do ill. There's no judgment. There hasn't been. The world's continued for all these years. He's never brought judgment, so he won't now. Zephaniah says, don't make that mistake. You might not have another day, either because you will die and stand before the judgment seat of Christ, or because the day of the Lord is going to come, and when it comes, it will come with finality. So don't procrastinate. He says to them, and he says to us. So what ought we to do? Notice what he says in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So he really says, seek the Lord. No, he does say seek righteousness and seek humility as well. But he says that after he says, seek the Lord, because the most significant thing that we ought to do is to seek the Lord. Now, that might sound counterintuitive, because as you read through this prophecy, you think, well, the problem is the Lord. He's the one who threatens us with judgment. He's the one who promises that the day of his wrath is going to come. So why would I go to him? It's terrifying. He's a terrifying God. I ought to run from him. No, no. You want to run to him. That's what the prophet says. He might be the problem, but he's also the solution. He says, neither your silver nor your gold are going to be able to deliver you. You've got no resources whatsoever. The only one who can save you from the wrath of God is God himself. It's wonderful that God himself is willing to save you from his own wrath. Certainly when it talks about uh, the silver or gold not being able to deliver them, you ought to think of what the Apostle Peter says to his readers in 1 Peter 1. He says, you've been redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, not with silver or gold or perishable things, but with the precious blood of the Lamb chosen from before the foundation of the world without defect or blemish. So to seek the Lord, means to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I mentioned earlier that, that the Lord Jesus was horrified at the wrath of God. He understood it in all of its ugliness, and all of its devastation, and yet he went through the wrath of God for his people. He said, your will be done. If the only way that your people can be spared from your wrath as if I take your wrath upon myself. Your will be done, O Lord. So in the marvel of the gospel, in the great news of what God has done in Jesus Christ, it is God himself, God the Son, God 
the second person of the Trinity. It's the Lord Jesus, the God-man. It is God himself who saves us from the wrath of God by taking upon himself our sins and the wrath that our sins deserve. So seek the Lord. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't put it off. And you will only seek the Lord if the Lord has humbled you. This, this comes out in an interesting way in, in chapter 1, verse 8. Notice there, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons. Why is God not going to punish the king? Well, because. Because the king was repentant. That's what we're told in 2 Kings 22. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, when he recognized how Israel had, had horribly fallen foul of God's righteous requirements. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He humbled himself. This is, this is what uh, the prophet was to say to the king. He's the king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against his inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I bring upon this place. So God's going to judge the king's sons, but he's not going to judge the king, because when the king heard of the wrath of God, he trembled, humbled himself before the Lord, sought the Lord's grace and mercy. That's our response by the Spirit of God. Humble ourselves, recognize what we deserve, and then seek the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who can spare us, hide us from the day of the wrath of the Lord. You know, the great thing, as unsettling as it is, to think about the wrath of God, the great thing about thinking about the wrath of God against sin is because it makes the Lord Jesus Christ all the more precious. What a Savior. Who would ever have thought that this is how God would redeem sinners, that he would punish his only begotten Son who served him unstintingly throughout his ministry, that God would pour out his judgment on the innocent so that the guilty might go free. It's wonderful. One last thing. This is the end of verse 3, and perhaps you think, uh, what's this really saying? Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. What's with that perhaps? Is there no confidence, no assurance that we can have that, that if we are trusted in Christ, we will be spared the judgment of God? Do we just need to, to believe in the Lord Jesus and cross our fingers and, and hope it's okay? No, no, of course not. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's with that perhaps? I think this is what that perhaps is for. He's saying, Zephaniah is saying to the people who are seeking the Lord, who are repentant, who are penitent, 
that maybe God will spare them the experience of the devastation that he's going to bring on everyone else who deserves it. That is, they might get caught up in the conflagration of that day. The king, Josiah, didn't. He was taken to glory before the day of judgment came. And Zephaniah is saying, perhaps that's what will happen to you. But know this, that if you do experience this day, it's not a day of punishment for you. Can't be, because you've sought the Lord and He's been merciful to you. But it will be a day of chastisement. You might have to go through all the horrible things that this day is prophesying. Just like Daniel, who was a faithful servant of the Lord, went through the exile, not because he was guilty, but because he was a part of the people of God. So I think that's what the perhaps is there for, not in any way suggesting that those who trust in the Lord and rely on the Lord Jesus Christ should have any doubt whatsoever that the sacrifice of Christ has been enough that Christ has fully paid the justice of God and that you will be welcomed. Upon your death, you will be welcomed with open arms into the presence of this holy, holy God. Isn't that remarkable? Let's pray. O God of grace and mercy, How could we bear to hear of your judgment if we did not hear of it being poured out on your only begotten Son in our place? And so we thank you for this revelation of yourself that uh, makes the cross all the more glorious for us because it it wasn't a a punishment for insignificant things. It wasn't a, a simple judgment that the Lord Jesus underwent for our sakes, but it was the fierce, fierce wrath of a holy God against sin. So thank you, O God our Father, for giving us your Son. We pray that we might treasure Christ all the more, that we might never think lightly of these things, but feel the weight of them, the weight and then the weight removed in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for those who uh, are still under your wrath and curse, who have not found a Redeemer, and we pray that you would bring them to the Savior. You would draw them, that you would uh, drive them, whatever, that you would bring them so that they would have salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.